Today I'm going to explain why I want to build a truth-telling machine, what that is, how much it'll cost to make, and why I simply have to do my part to help create it before I die. Ready? You've discovered the Pemology Society podcast. Join us on our journey as we explore the maximization of awesomeness one ray of light at a time. And now, the host of today's episode, the Pemology Society's founder, James Carvin. A truth-telling machine? Really? I like the word machine. It sounds so industrial, so inventive. It's why I made the sprocket of industrial innovation Pemology's central symbol, right atop the top hat of excellence and creativity. I went for something steampunky, and it wasn't just about fashion. I was thinking about humanity taking its first steps into the technological age with the help of that leveraging gear, that ever-useful sprocket. It spoke to me, saying, Limitless creativity begins here. And then, deep under the outer layer of ingenuity, far beyond the comprehension of the here and now, there in the midst was God Almighty, creator of everything, inspiring it all. I'm using the word machine loosely. It's not as though what I'm thinking of has literal sprockets and rotating widgetificators, and it doesn't have polygraph hookups. What I'm really going to describe, my truth-telling machine, is a social media platform for researchers to create better fact checks with. It's a sort of dull product, actually. You, of course, are welcome to call it a truth machine anyway, because functionally, it's designed to help us figure out what's true and what's not. And it's nothing like anything that you've seen before. So let's talk about that. First, the current art of fact-checking. What's going on? Probably the best-known fact-checking organization is Snopes. Snopes started out looking into urban myths. Was there really a sighting of the Loch Ness Monster? Does Bigfoot really have a family now? Where do those pictures come from? Was Bill Clinton really visited by Martians? You know the sort of thing. Somebody had to check into those stories to see if they were true. Snopes was the go-to place to figure stuff like that out. Then one day, politicians got a hold of Snopes and ruined it. Don't you hate politics? If Snopes said something that helped the other side politically, presumably it wasn't because Snopes was telling the truth. It was because Snopes was politically active and biased. And that's just how people think. If you were a conservative, it rubbed you the wrong way that Snopes claimed to be started by Republicans, but the information they gathered seemed to be coming from Hillary Clinton's legal defense team. If you were a liberal, you were wondering why Snopes wasn't exposing systemic racism and gender disparity, and why it was lying about the extent of LBGQT plus oppression. The left thought Snopes was biased to the right. The right thought it was biased to the left. No one trusted it for politics. Before long, Snopes left Facebook and gave its political fact-checking business to a few other organizations approved by the International Fact-Checking Network, known as the IFCN. You may not be aware, but only IFCN-endorsed fact-checking organizations are utilized by Facebook to block 
content based on their fact checks. They use an algorithm also used by Google called Claim Check Review. Google uses the algorithm to place only what it considers factual at the top of search results. It determines what it guesses are trusted sources and authorities. Few people, especially Americans, ever search through page two of a search result. Now that's a good thing, right? That means misinformation is being suppressed. Misinformation is bad for people, isn't it? Yes, yes, and yes. But there is a problem. The world is divided between believers and skeptics. Trust in big tech has been declining. Conservatives, in particular, are reluctant to believe what fact-checking organizations have to say. The demographics here are quite fascinating, too, so I'm including on my Pomology blog and podcast transcripts some charts for you to see. Women, for instance, tend to trust fact-checks more than men. Respect. But is that trust merited? In July of 2019, a programmer named Scott Cole scraped every fact check that PolitiFact had ever done since it started business in 2007 and tabulated the scores. Like most people, he assumed he could trust PolitiFact and expected to show that it was unbiased. However, the data he collected showed that Democrats consistently scored higher than Republicans on truth scores. In fact, year after year, Republicans got lower scores and Democrats got higher scores. It wasn't even close, and the difference kept widening. Now, that could mean many things, probably some combination of them. It could mean Republicans really do lie significantly more than Democrats overall, more so now than ever before. It could mean PolitiFact is being selective about what it reports. It could mean that PolitiFact itself is being less than honest and fair consciously or subconsciously, because of the general leadings of its staff. And it could be because its editors find that exposing lies sells more newspapers for the Tampa Bay Times that owns PolitiFact and its syndicates. It could be because it gets more attention through those vital and very lucrative claim check review algorithms that pop up every time someone says something officially incorrect or debatable on social media. It doesn't all have to do with bias. Money is a driver, too. Whereas most companies pay Facebook to advertise, Facebook actually pays PolitiFact, literally millions of dollars, as a content provider. Now, somewhere in the midst of all those most likely explanations is the truth, and your opinion about it may be right or wrong. Conservatives look at this reporting, and they're not likely to conclude that it's because Republicans lie more than Democrats do. Democrats may well think so, but Republicans definitely wouldn't. Let me offer some predictions. I think two seriously bad things are about to happen. First, trust in media and big tech will decline. Trust in giant social media and in Google has been disappearing for a long time, particularly among those on the right. But I predict before long, it'll disappear on the left as well. If my instincts are right, censorship will be denied at first, then justified as denial loses its credibility, and then eventually mocked, as no rationale other than that's just how things are will fit any reasonable narrative. The second bad thing, I think, will stem from this, and it's already happening. We'll seal the doors shut on our echo chambers. I'm sure you've heard of an echo chamber before. It's a place where you only hear your own voice. You surround yourself with a community that agrees on certain issues. Anything contrary to the echo chamber's narrative comes from those liars in the other echo chamber. Those poor, poor Kool-Aid drinking fools over there. Those in the one chamber don't venture to the other much at all because it's uncomfortable. It's daring. It can even be painful to do it. 
It means removing the comfort of acceptance from a group that we may have enjoyed and gained a lot from, maybe even been paid by. It may mean removing an ego-boosting sense of personal pride and self-worth. It may mean we have to face the fact that so much of what we've worked for and spoken about was actually wrong all along. Let's do a self-evaluation. Do the causes that I associate with serve as a substitute for my own merits and deserving self-respect? Where do I get my sense of self-worth? Is it from the groups that I associate myself with? What am I personally doing to contribute to the awesomeness of this world? Me personally. Would I still be able to love myself if I discovered that the groups that I've supported have been wrong? There's a lot behind what goes into why we associate with various groups. All I really want to focus on here is the fact that when those disparate groups have conflicts of ideas, the results can be very dangerous to us as a society. It's the sort of thing that results in riots and insurrections. Now, whether you're the kind of person who thinks that Google and Facebook can't be trusted or that they can and just aren't doing enough, can you see how suppression of the information that you think is misinformation might serve to convince people in an echo chamber that their free speech rights are not valued by you? As they see it, we're going the way of the Chinese. They see the end of America in those types of efforts. Can you see why that might not be a good path towards peace? From their perspective, the system has been rigged. And from what I can see, they have good reason not to trust it. All they have to do is go to the Pointer Institute's website and see what it takes to get an endorsement from the IFCN. Now, while Duke Reporter Labs now lists over 300 fact-checking organizations worldwide, there are only 29 IFCN-endorsed fact-checking organizations, the last I checked. Have you seen how the IFCN endorsement process works? A seven-member panel checks out applying organizations. Just seven people. And who are those seven people? Well, the two Americans of the seven are Angie Holan of PolitiFact and Glenn Kessler of the Washington Post Fact Checker. If these two, which happen to be living in the same echo chamber, happen to agree, which they almost invariably do, they only need two other votes from the other five members to approve or disapprove an applicant fact-checking organization. And almost invariably, they'll build around their own comfort zone, won't they? Now, given how fact-checking authority is used by big tech, these two people wield a lot of power over the information that we receive. And the power of suppression only begins there. Once the facts are established by this handful of cherry-picked fact-checking organizations all residing in a single echo chamber, the authority going to the corresponding group narrative is used by groups such as Good Information Incorporated and the Aspen Institute to work with government intelligence to root out those who disagree. The Aspen Institute Institute's 16-member Commission on Information Disorder is opposed to dialogue with those with counter-narratives. Its justification is given in the lead for its 80-page report. Information disorder is a crisis that exacerbates all other crises. Climate change denial makes climate change worse. Pandemic denial makes pandemics worse. Denial of racism makes racism worse. And the list goes on. Could be. 
But the Commission doesn't want a discussion about it. They want to treat those who see things differently as potential threats to national security. They aren't just wrong, they're dangerous. Do you see where this goes? Fundamentally, then, here's how the conservative who distrusts big tech is going to look at this. They're going to say the Washington Post and the Tampa Bay Times are left-leaning organizations that have a long-standing tradition of undermining conservative political causes and their candidates through their choice of what they report and how they report it. The fact-checkers merely lend an air of authority to their bias. The way conservatives see it, the whole fact-checking thing is a crafty ruse. It's good marketing. But it's a sham. What conservatives have always suspected, that the media is biased and big tech can't be trusted, is grounded in that basic reality. And now, the FBI is involved, profiling them for supporting Donald Trump. That's not something that makes for peace. But what if I told you I could fix this? Suppose there was a way to convince conservatives to trust the fact checks. Let that sprocket on your top hat spin a little bit. What you need is a better truth detection machine, one that vets information right in front of them. So that's what I invented. I call it the counterchecker. Instead of just watching things go from bad to worse, I designed a new platform that doesn't assume truth is all contained in any one echo chamber. It depressurizes each chamber by connecting them with an airlock. Okay, that's just a metaphor. No one is trapped inside an echo chamber. What the counterchecker actually does is it addresses an obvious flaw in the way things currently work. So let's look at that. The way fact checks are currently done, some question will come up that helps or hurts a particular political candidate or cause. And for instance, let's just take climate change. It's very common for climate change experts to show evidence that proves that climate change denial is wrong, right? In 2017, as an example, a fact check organization specializing in climate change, climatefeedback.org, was approved by the IFCN, having been created for that purpose. The way it works is that a claim is made suggesting the basis for climate change assumptions is wrong, and then that claim is disputed by the organization. Typically, that ends the discussion because there's some amount of research data to back up what the organization's expert has to say. End of story, there's your fact. The problem with that methodology is that there's no cross-examination. What the counter-checker does differently is it turns fact-checking into a dialogue between researchers that addresses as many points as needed to fully examine a question. Minority and dissenting views would be given a voice, but it wouldn't be a shouting match. The result is that the reader not only hears whether something is right or wrong, but can find out exactly why by searching through the whole dispute. Now, I need to clarify up front that the voice that dissenters have on this platform is not an opportunity to spout misinformation and get equal airtime. That's not what's going on here with the counterchecker. The system is very highly sophisticated. I spent a lot of time developing it. And if any facts are presented, the people telling the truth can refute them on the spot with the evidence that they have. It's not a shouting match at all. It's a process for checking facts and keeping each side accountable. The counterchecker offers an indisputably objective scoring system. It's based on the number of points made and the number of times those points points are violated, as counted by the dissenting teams, by the opposing team. This produces objective scores for articles, scores for researchers, scores for teams of researchers, and scores for fact-check organizations. You're going to like it. The way it's designed, 
facts are easily searched because repetitive information is systematically discouraged through a system of penalties issued by the opposing researchers in their teams. So think about it. In the current way of fact-checking, a highly funded organization, which is trusted among journalists but not necessarily by the population as a whole, pays journalists who tend to agree with them ideologically. While that's great for selling news, because it targets specific echo chambers who will pay for what comforts them, it's not great for providing just the facts. And it's not great for building trust or uniting a divided country. If our goal is to determine a common set of facts that we can all agree on, instead of each echo chamber having its own alternative facts, we need a paradigm shift. Claiming to be unbiased is very easy to do, but what measures are in place to ensure it? The counterchecker does this by providing just a platform, not the researchers. It invites researchers selected by opposing teams of thinkers to hash out their ideas on the platform. It doesn't treat an opposing view as an equivalent view. It checks both the orthodox and unorthodox viewpoint through opposition. Imagine a courtroom only providing a prosecution we're only providing a defense, but no cross-examination. That would be crazy, wouldn't it? So why do we allow that with our fact-checking? Here's how it works. The head of a think tank A and the head of think tank B, political archenemies, select their own teams of researchers to use the platform and dispute one another's claims. The platform itself issues objective scoring criteria. The machine is the only thing we can all admit is indisputably unbiased. No matter what ideological view a person holds, they can't disagree with the inherent fairness of the machine itself. The platform is a machine with rules that apply equally to each side of any dispute. Of course, the counterchecker doesn't have to be limited to politics. Suppose I'm having an argument with a friend about how many planets there are in the galaxy, or whether there really are miracles. What about, who's the best NBA player of all time? Teams of experts come in all shapes and sizes. And here's another problem. How do you separate opinion from fact? What's the difference between objective and subjective criteria? What about if there are three pieces of evidence for and two against an idea? Have you figured out the truth? One of the other features I like about the counterchecker, having seen the design, is how it separates facts from opinions and beliefs. Another is the way it's designed to resolve disputes on any subject, not just politics. It may come up with the answer, I don't know, a bit too often for most people's taste, but I suppose that's just the price of being fair. I won't go into the later iterations of the technology here. I told you I'd talk about how much the machine would cost to build and why I thought building it would probably be the most important thing I could do before I die. If you follow the Pomology Society blogs and podcasts, you know that truth is what the Pomology Society is built on. It questions everything. If we can manage to leave our pride to the side and trust the exploration of truth, admitting it when we find out we've been wrong, then maybe there's hope for us as human beings. We may just get through this division. Now, on a more strategic and practical note, if the Pomology Society sponsors the counterchecker, making it possible, then the counterchecker will likely disclose that fact and link back to it. Personally, I think people are very much interested in facts. 
Every news source certainly is, but so is science, sports, and religion, and a lot of other subjects. Knowledge is super important to just about everyone, and that means the counterchecker will, in all likelihood, link back to the Pimelogy Society from just about everywhere. Call it a marketing strategy. It's branding. Next time we have to ask for money, maybe our name will be more familiar. It'll be easier to do. For me, making a list of things I'd like to do before I die to maximize the world's awesomeness is important, but it has to be achievable. A good strategy will be one that makes each idea build on the last. That's why, of all the projects listed at jamescarbon.com, I think the counterchecker needs to come first. So, back to the truth machine, it stands to reason that if grant monies become available for better journalism and the elimination of disinformation, as I hear is increasingly the case, that the counterchecker is the best choice for achieving that goal. An estimated $1.4 million in research and development funding is needed for the project, which is expected to take nine months to complete. So you can expect the Pomology Society to make an appeal in the coming days to those granting organizations. The Pomology Society will begin voting on the first projects that it will be funding very shortly. Expect an announcement soon. Now before I say goodbye, until next time, let me address a funny sort of elephant in the room. You may have heard I was planning to ask one of the organizations funded by George Soros for a donation. When it comes to who we can accept funding from, there are certain limits. First, a 501c3 public charity can't accept funds from a political candidate or political advocacy group. I'm sure you know that. We also have to avoid any conflicts of interest. And there are also something called conflicts of perception to think about. Did I really say George Soros? What will conservatives think? They're likely to suppose that if the Pomology Society accepts funds from George Soros or any other source with a history of support for progressive causes, that in some way the society would be beholden to support their viewpoints. And that works two ways. Others have suggested that progressives like Soros would never support a platform that permitted objections to progressive facts. The views expressed in the Aspen Commission might show an objection to two-way communication, for instance. In our next episode, I'll talk more about the work of this commission. But I have a question. It's something of a challenge. Why would someone like George Soros object to funding the counterchecker, a vehicle that allows those who probably disagree with him to have a platform to communicate if he believed his own views would prevail? Why wouldn't he see the platform-only approach that we have as an opportunity to prove that he's fairer-minded than he's made out to be? If he were to refuse to fund it, that might certainly indicate that fairness was not what he intends. I don't think he would refuse it. I think he would see it as a good solution. He would see it as an opportunity. For one thing, he could prove himself. Now, that's why I like the counterchecker as a truth machine. It doesn't really matter who funds it. It's just a machine. It doesn't have any opinions or agendas. In the end, the public sees both sides of every story, not just one, and they see why certain arguments fail. The conspiracy theories of conservatives are weakened by the facts. On the other hand, if he doesn't fund it, the conservatives will assume that it's because he doesn't really care about facts. He'd rather manipulate and use facts to his advantage. I don't think he would do that. This brings me to the last aspect of the Soros factor, and I want to be sensitive. Apparently, every time someone mentions this man's name, certain outlets claim it's anti-Semitic to do so. I've dared mention his name, so I unfortunately must clarify that I do so with no clue as to why mentioning such a name should have anything to do with what opinions I have of the Jew 
Jewish people. For the record, I have no particular opinion about Jewish people. I'm familiar with various forms of Judaism. There's a lot about Judaism that I appreciate, but I'm not a Jew myself, and I haven't quite learned why this became an issue. My personal experience with Jewish people has not been a negative experience. Generally, when Jewish people have been around me, it's been the Jewish person calling attention to their Jewishness rather than me. If they weren't wearing a yarmulke or a phylactery, I wouldn't know if a person was Jewish unless they told me. I can't personally remember any time where I ever brought up the subject outside of a discussion of asking questions about religion with someone who seemed to want to talk about it. I don't know whether George Soros is a Jew by heritage only or whether he is an active believer. I've heard he was an atheist, but that may really just mean he's an agnostic. I know more about what he's done as a political activist than I do on his thoughts on religion. All that said, let's suppose I was able to convince an organization like the Aspen Commission, which is working to diminish disinformation, or Good Information Incorporated, which is being funded by Reid Hoffman and George Soros to support journalistic enterprises that are fact-check-based, to fund the counter-checker. The people behind those enterprises, Katie Couric, Rashad Robinson, and others, have publicly opposed equivalency media. That is, media that gives an equal voice to opposition, when fact checks have shown one side is a source of misinformation. I'd have to show that the counterchecker is not just showing balance, it's offering a better process for determining facts. And indeed, that's the case. So, assuming I succeeded, the problem is not George Soros. It's the question of whether conservatives would participate, knowing that George Soros had a hand in funding it. The challenge works both ways. And all that's to say, the platform-only approach is clearly the best approach. It remains to be seen who will come forward to support it. I want to do all I can to make sure the vehicle is available. That's my part. The rest is up to the powers that be. Let's see what they do with it. Next time, I'll talk about freedom, including freedom of speech, why it matters, and how to use it, and what's so awesome about it. In later episodes, I'll describe how the process of funding projects works and what it is we hope to do to incubate worthy programs like the Counterchecker and like the other programs listed at jamescarvin.com. Plus, if you'll submit your own concepts, maybe we could talk about the things that you think would make the world more awesome, too. Ciao. Thank you for listening to the Pemology Society podcast. Transcripts of our podcast may be found at our website at pemology.com. We love it when you share them. Want to dig deeper? Complete our Pemology 101 course. It's free to subscribers, and you just may earn a top hat. If it would be good, it's true. I've got good news for you.